Um, I'd just like to begin by saying quite how thrilled I am to see so many current and former St Anne's Classic students here today. Um, I'd also like to express briefly my particular gratitude to our colleagues in the development office who've put so much effort into organising this event and to Dr Rosie Wiles for all that she's told us about tragic costume and swords. Um, ever since Rosie turned her attention to uh, costume in Greek tragedy, I have on and off um, worried her with stray references from the Roman writers about, say, how the Philoctetes of the Roman tragedian Accius apparently appeared on stage in a costume made up of the feathers of the birds that he had shot, um, or how in Strabo we are told that the people of Cadiz um, wore a costume that recalled that of the tragic furies. So you know, every now and then she's had the latest witless email from her old tutor with the, some fascinating reference to ancient costume, most of which she knew about already. Um, but I should like to say that I, at the same time, as I have taught and written about and thought about Roman comedy, I've also been very aware of the importance of costume within the works of Plautus and Terence. And I've become conscious of their fundamental, the fundamental significance of costume in their work and in the Roman theatrical tradition as a whole. And as a basic statement, costume matters from head to toe. And I'm therefore going to say something about masks, robes, and shoes. I shall also try to show you something of how Plautus, in particular, plays with the very idea of theatrical costume and even brings the company manager or perhaps the wardrobe assistant onto the stage. Now, um, here on up we have a figurine illustrating one of the key figures from Roman comedy, the slave. And I think you can see how that figurine does actually overlap with some of the things that are used to describe the slave in comedy. In particular, I noticed the reference to him as being um, pot-bellied, thick calves, big of head, sharp of lip, red of, sharp of eye, red of lip. You may notice the colouring on this figurine, so that he seems to have a red face, and then there are, these are the ancient colours, and then other blue bits elsewhere. And yes, his feet are pretty big, and I, I guess on the whole, the, this poor guy's feet are pretty big. Um, but so we've got here his costume, we've got his mask, we've certainly got his footwear, and we've got the robes that he's wearing. So those are going to be the three areas that I'd like to address this afternoon. Now, as you're probably aware, Roman comedy is essentially an offshoot of the Greek new comedy of the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. And it shares with Greek new comedy many of the same modes of communication. In particular, we might think about the mask. As soon as a character comes on stage in comedy, the audience will be able to identify fundamental character traits from his or her mask. So you have a succession of stock types who appear repeatedly in the new comedy of Menander and then in the Roman comedy of Plautus and Terence. Um, people like the aged father, uh, his slightly more tolerant friend, um, the mother, the young lover, the pimp, 
the courtesan, the cook, the boastful soldier, and the slave. So these are perhaps some of the most famous types, but each is also subject to significant subdivision. And the second century AD Athenian scholar Pollux, in his work The Onomasticon, actually gives us an extended list of 44 different new comic masks. So you have the basic figures that I've cited to you, but then each of those figures will have various subdivisions within it. And the thing is that each of those masks effectively represents an end state. Once you are a boastful soldier, even if you say, I am not going to be a boastful soldier today, or I intend to demonstrate my extraordinary modesty relative to the achievements and manners of my contemporaries, you will inevitably, by the end of the play, start demonstrating a considerable degree of boastfulness. You are trapped fundamentally within your mask. Now, as for masks, the picture at Rome is a little bit more complicated, thanks to a rather eccentric tradition, claiming that masks were not introduced until the first century BC, when the famous comic actor Roscius determined to cover over his squint. Everything else, however, seems to indicate that Roman comedy was masked from the outset, and in particular in Roman comedies where people swap identities, they often deliver analogies, say, with funeral masks, with imagines. So when you take somebody else's identity, it's as if you're putting on their mask instead. So my assumption is that Roman comedy is masked from the beginning. And I should say also um, that when I speak about masks, I also refer to the wigs that are attached to them. Okay, so hair can be very important in differentiating one character from another. But I want to turn now to the dress that's worn by characters in comedy. And here too, Pollux has some very interesting information. Five chapters, five or six chapters of the Onomasticon are all delivered, uh, devoted to the different types of dress that people wear in comedy. But in Rome, we now also have some information specific to their tradition, and that information is included in the first item on your handout, which is a short essay on comedy by somebody called Evanthius that appears in the commentaries on Terence of the late antique grammarian Donatus. I think you've all got copies of the handout, haven't you? Good. So I'll have a look at what Evanthius has to say. Notice the colour coding. Old men in comedy, he says, are dressed in white, as that is said to be the oldest style. Young men wear garments which contrast with each other in colour. Slaves in comedy wear a short garb, either because of the poverty of early times or to allow a free movement. Parasites wear their mantles wrapped. White is the colour for a cheerful character. A man in trouble wears shabby clothes. Purple is the colour for the rich. Red for the poor. A soldier wears a purple chlamys, a cloak. Girls are dressed in foreign style. A pimp wears a costume of variegated hue. A harlot is given a yellow mantle to indicate her avarice. So colour here 
seems to be one of the fundamental factors in differentiating different sorts of costume. Now, this is from late antiquity, and it must remain something of an open question exactly where Evanthius derives these claims from. We know, in particular, that Terence was widely read as a school text in late antiquity, but we hear very little of him actually being performed. This is a problem with the second piece of evidence I'm going to show you as well. We may also, I think, sometimes find examples from the visual evidence where a character appears to wear a dress of different cut or colour from that suggested by Evanthius. But the basic principle of a colour-coded system of visual signification, I think, must hold true. Well, so far I've argued for a significant degree of continuity between Greek New Comedy and that of Rome. But I'd now like to underline one fundamental area of difference. Now, the next image that I've put up for you is, is rather lovely. This is one of a number of illustrations found in the 5th century AD Vatican manuscript of Terence. So these are some of the earliest manuscripts that we have for any ancient author. And somebody decided to include within these manuscripts some rather lovely drawings of the characters on stage, either from performance or, as seems much more likely, because some of these scenes actually are just imagined, the four characters don't appear on stage in that order, how this person imagined they must have looked. Um, and this one in particular is from Terence's play, The Andrea. And what I'd like you to notice is that the dark robe that is worn by three of the four characters hitched over the shoulder is called a pallium. And all three of these characters are free Athenian citizens. The figure not wearing a pallium, the second one along from me, identified as Sosia, is a slave. Now, the Andrea itself was the first of Terence's comedies, and it was based on a Greek original, or two Greek originals, by the most famous writer of Greek new comedy, Menander. In this context, it is therefore important to note that one of the hallmarks of the works of Menander is what I would call the erasure of difference between the world of the characters and that of the audience. So the world on stage is brought as close to the world of audience as it is, or closer than in any other ancient Greek dramatic form. That, at least, is what the critic Aristophanes of Byzantium must have meant by his famous question, O Menander, O life, which of you imitated the other? So the plays of Greek New Comedy are set within the world of their original audience. The most typical location is a city street in Athens, and the characters depicted are also of that world. So this is the closest, I would say, that ancient drama comes to what we might call the naturalistic mode. And the clothes that are worn on stage 
bear a close relationship to those familiar from the world outside. I'm not going to, certainly they're not identical, but they bear a close relationship. By contrast, for the Roman viewer of Terence, the pallium worn by the characters of comedy is a marker of difference. It is the thing that tells them that the world depicted is not their world, but rather a different culture, that of Greece. So the pallium sets the audience apart from the actors on the stage, and the plays of Plautus in particular pullulate with references to it. And I've given you some examples on the handout. Um, to simplify the matter for you, for fans of uh, the English situation comedy of the 1980s and 1990s, the pallium in Plautus is a marker of difference, of Greekness, in the way that, say, in Allo Allo, the beret or the SS uniform would be. Now, so powerful was the association between the genre of Roman comedy, written by Plautus and Terence, and the costume worn, that the first century BC grammarian Marcus Terentius Varro coined the term palliata, palliate comedy, in order to describe it. And I think I've put that item on the handout for you as well. The same writer may also be behind some wonderful pages of the late Roman grammarian Diomedes and his division of the different modes of Roman drama, both serious and comic. So to Diomedes, those comedies written by Titinius, Aphranius and Atta that take the basic plots of Greek comedy but relocate them to the Municipia, the towns of central Italy, are called togate comedies, togatai. By contrast, serious historical dramas in Roman dress are called praetextatai, by reference to the purple-striped toga worn by the grand characters appearing in them. Elsewhere, we learn that another name for Greek-style comedy was the fabula crepidata, after the Greek slipper, the krepis, which the Romans called crepida. So when the Romans think about dramatic genre, they tend to think about them in terms of costume. Costume becomes the sort of defining mark, the shorthand, for what a particular dramatic mode is, how it's to be thought about. So the choice between the pallium and the toga is the key visual signal indicating whether a drama is set in Greece or in Rome. And where the costume of Greek new comedy erases the difference between the world of the audience and that of the stage, the dress of Plautine and Tarentian comedy does exactly the opposite. It tells the Roman audience that the world on stage is one other than their own. Now, how much humour each playwright then chooses to derive from such effects 
varies quite considerably. Terence, in particular, who really does pursue as much as possible a naturalistic mode, characteristically, perhaps, in all six of his plays, refers to the pallium only three times. Moreover, when his characters talk about what they're wearing, they tend to talk about dress, vestis, and not costume, ornamenta. There's an important difference between the two, which I'll come on to. Plautus, by contrast, has not the slightest time for naturalism, and his plays repeatedly play with the most basic rules of dramatic representation. Consider, for example, a little play of his called the Curculio. This play is set in Epidaurus, and its eponymous hero is a native of the city. Yet when, at lines 280 to 298, Curculio offers, let us say, a bravura performance of what's called the running slave entrance monologue, that is to say the monologue whereby a very overexcited slave um, rushes onto the stage in order to pass on a message of crucial importance to his master, and then charges around the stage as fast as possible, listing all of the different groups he intends to barge out of his way, until finally coming to his senses and realising that his master has actually been standing there all the time, alone, waiting to hear the message. This running slave entrance monologue involves, in this case, Curculio listing various different groups he intends to knock out of the way, should they delay him, including Isti Graeci Palliati, those Greeks in their palliums, pallia. Now this, of course, would make perfect sense in Rome, where Greeks are a minority and their dress perhaps a marked category. In a place set in Epidaurus, where all are Greek unless otherwise stated, in the mouth of a character whose own stock uniform is none other than the pallium, it all sounds rather odd. As we will see, this is only the start of the rather disorienting tricks with costume that the Curculio plays. Now, I promised at the beginning of this lecture that I would address the costume of comedy from head to foot, and it's therefore high time that I said something about one essential component, the socus or the slipper. Um, this is, for me, a rather fundamental aspect of comedy because it has um, explained to me, uh, let's say when I've been at my analyst um, trying to tell him why I devoted so many years of my life to the study of comedy, um, I realise now that uh, I understand why my muse was comic. The socus keeps you low to the ground. Um, I had a wonderful letter recently from an American professor. Um, I had, uh, he doesn't know me, by the way. Um, and he had asked me to do one of those things you do for American universities um, for free, despite their immense wealth. Um, that is to say, to, to read the entire works of um, a young professor coming up for tenure and then to write a letter saying whether or not they should receive tenure. 
and um, the dean of the college that wrote to me um, wrote back and said, uh, Professor Lee, we are so proud to have a scholar of your stature. Um, <laughs> I thought, oh, honey, if only you knew. <laughs> anyway. Well, um, on the handout, I have printed for you some characteristically complacent lines of the younger Pliny, um, in which he describes two of the many villas that he possesses on the shores of Lake Como. He says, I have several villas on the shores of this lake, but two of them in particular both delight me and keep me busy. The one, propped up on the rocks, in the Bayern Manor, looks out over the lake. The other, no less in the Bayern Manor, touches the edge of the lake. Thus, I am accustomed to call the former tragedy, the latter comedy. The former, because it is, so to speak, held aloft by buskins, the latter, so to speak, by slippers. Now, the distinction that Pliny draws may become clearer if we consider the next two images that I wish to show you. This is a figurine depicting a tragic actor wearing a mask, the long robe known to the Greeks as a sirma and to the Romans as a pala, and on his feet, those remarkable stack high-heeled boots that are known as the coturnus, or in Latin sometimes the callo. These are, by some modern estimates, approximately between three and five inches high. So Pliny's... Um, now, the second one of these that I give you is a woodcut that's been taken from a Roman wall painting, and it depicts a comic actor in the loose cloth slipper known as the Socus, and you'll see how that one keeps him pleasantly close to the ground. Now, Pliny's villa, perched up on the rocks, thus achieves the elevation of the buskin, while that at the edge of the lake remains as close to the ground as the slipper. This is a significant pattern and worth considering further. Now, Aristotle, in his Poetics, divides the objects of mimesis, of representation, into those that are either better or worse or equivalent to us. He adds that it is the job of comedy to represent those who are worse, fauloteron. Likewise, if you look at the second passage of Diomedes I've given you, when discussing the two types of togate drama, he observes that the praetexta resembles tragedy in the distinction and loftiness of its characters, sublimitas. While those characters who feature in what are called tabernarii, that's basically to say Roman togate comedy. Well, the tabernarii equate to comedies on account of the lowliness of the characters and the similarity of the plots. Notice that word humilitas and its connection to the humus, keeping you close to the soil. Sublimitas is a word that in Greek you would translate as hypsos, which again suggests elevation. 
So the best way to bring this home visually, that one set of characters and one genre is higher, more distinguished and greater than the other, is actually to prop the characters of tragedy up on heels that will keep them three to five inches taller than those of comedy. The point is brought home rather beautifully in a play of Plautus called The Little Carthaginian, the Poignolus. Here, the hero of the play, the Carthaginian Hanno, finally encounters the daughters he lost when they were little girls. And he gasps at how big they have now grown. His interlocutor swiftly explains why. They are, sir, tragedienne, and they are accustomed to be lifted up on calones, which is another word for cotourni, on buskins. Um, they are actually um, prostitutes on the way to a festival at the Temple of Venus, but we won't go into that now. So the footwear donned by the actors of tragedy and comedy has a clear indication of their status within it, but also it has significant movement implications for the type of movement of which they are capable. Now, I have not, I confess, or rather, I promise you, ever resorted to a pair of elevator boots, or even a nice pair of Cuban heels. I have rather restricted myself to the observation that my beloved might like to consider a nice pair of court shoes instead of those stilettos. Yet I have admired the stately poise and sympathised with the pained self-consciousness of those making their way around in seriously high heels. I can therefore appreciate what Ovid is on about in the opening book poem of book three of the Amores. At this point, he is standing at a crossroads when two women come to contest his loyalty. One is Elegy, and she is rather, um, she is dressed in such a way as to make a man feel optimistic. The other is Tragedy, who, um, Ovid wrote a tragic Medea. So anyway, they are going to basically have a balloon debate contesting his loyalty. And you might notice how he introduces Tragedy. He describes her pallor, her robes trailing along the ground. And then he refers to the enormous steps that she takes as she strides forth in her buskins. So I guess if you're going to walk around in things like these, you're going to get as much sort of leg length out of each step as possible, because you really don't want to be scurrying around. So, so stately tragedy takes large steps as she moves around. The comic actor, by contrast, not only stays close to the ground in his slocus, his slipper, but he also owes to it his capacity for swift and darting movement. 
you may wish to think of the ever more hectic movements of the actors of farce. The way that a farce might begin quite calmly and then one confusion will lead into another, into another, into another until everybody is running around the stage, leaping out of the French windows, leaping into the cupboard, leaping out of the cupboard again and suddenly discovering that someone has stolen their trousers. The way that the movement of comedy of farce grows faster and faster and faster as one confusion spawns another. Well, in Plautus, characters do a lot <coughs> of rushing around. And perhaps the most distinctive motif is that to which I referred earlier, this running slave entrance monologue. It's therefore perhaps no surprise that Horace, when he describes Plautus in Book 2 of the Epistles, Poem 1, he describes him as rushing like his model, the Sicilian comic poet Epicamus. Plautus ad exemplar siculi properare, epicarmi, properare, he rushes around. Or where Horace goes on to bid his reader to note with what a loose slipper Plautus runs around the scene. Quam non ad stricto percurat pulpita socco. Percurat, running around again. Such manic movement could never be accomplished in a buskin. And time and again in Latin writing, the coturnus, the buskin, becomes a metonym for tragedy and the socus, a metonym for comedy. Now, when an actor dons a mask, a costume, he or she merges identity with that of the character represented. We can see some of this in the last picture that I wanted to show you. This is a marble relief allegedly of Menander, if not of Menander, let's say, of an actor, who is holding up one of the masks that he may wear. But the mask is the identity that he's about to put on. But you might notice that two other potential identities are just sitting there alongside him on the bench. And he could as easily merge his self in the time of acting with either of those characters instead. Now, in naturalistic theatre, what the audience see on stage is essentially the character, not the actor playing the part. And this effect is maintained until the curtain call, when we applaud the actors as actors and give our appreciation for their performance. That moment when they all sweep back on stage again together and link arms and take a bow, we're really engaging with them as actors for their performance rather than as the characters that we have watched on stage. But in the theatre as willfully non-naturalistic as that of Plautus, any such theatrical illusion is broken almost from the first, and we never lose sight of the actor underneath the mask. And this is also 
where the wardrobe attendant or perhaps the comic company manager comes in. And I'd like to close my talk with just a few examples of how this can work. Now, the term that I've rather loosely translated as wardrobe assistant and better as company manager, choragus, should suggest to you, I think, perhaps the 5th and 4th century Greek idea of the choregos that Rosie talked about when she showed us the, um, the vase with two choregoi and two actors, including, I guess, the sonnet. So in the 5th century, it's the person who agrees to pay for the entire performance, the actors, the play, their props, their dress, everything. In the period of Plautus and Terence, a choragos is probably much something much more like the manager of a group of professional actors, such as those called the artists of Dionysus, who started touring Italy, performing plays in Greek from perhaps the beginning of the third century BC. So it's a more professionalized and permanent role. Now I referred earlier to the Curculio and to the assault on theatrical naturalism of having a notionally Greek character resolve to knock aside those Greeks in their pallia. As the play develops, even stranger things happen. Curculio, a parasite, lurches from pretending to be a running slave to impersonating the representative of the boastful soldier whom they wish to defraud, and finally turns back into the parasite he originally was. Throughout all of this, his acting is accompanied by constant changes of costume. And in this way, the fundamental theatrical illusion of putting on a new identity when we put on a new dress or a new mask is replicated on stage as Curculio becomes whatever he needs to be for the purposes of his latest trick. And this is what we mean when we talk about Plautine metatheatre. Now, these two levels of illusion, the actor becoming the character and the character becoming somebody else, finally merge in the Curculio when the Choragus comes on stage and expresses his anxiety for the safety of the goods which he has entrusted to our hero. So he says, by Pollux, a splendid stroke of Phydramuses, hitting on this splendid swindler. I hardly know whether to call him more sharp or sharper. The ornamenta, the costumes I hired out, are gone for good, I fear me. To be sure, I had no dealings with him. I trusted them to Phydramus himself, but I'll keep my eyes open. So we get the guy coming from backstage who gave out the costumes, coming on the front of the stage and saying, oh dear audience, I am feeling incredibly anxious. I'm never going to get my costumes back from that wretched Curculio character. Now, were this not enough, and you might think it is enough, to sabotage any vestiges of theatrical illusion, the same company manager then launches into a form of rough guide to the forum, 
the forum not of Epidaurus, but of Rome. So where are we? One begins to wonder. And in the passage that I've quoted from the speech of the props manager, the sworn Corregus, I've italicised the term ornamenta. The reason for this is that ornamenta is cited by later grammarians as the technical term for the costumes distributed by the Choragus. It thus has a markedly theatrical association that is not shared by words applicable to day-to-day wear, such as vestus. When, therefore, Plautine characters employ disguises in order to intrigue against another person, they typically refer to ornamenta or use versions of the verb ornare to decorate, to dress up. They also refer to the choragus as the man from whom they will get their kit. When, moreover, they come out on stage again, the exaggerated quality and downright silliness of their costume makes it as wantonly unrealistic and theatrical as the succession of disguises, um, the painter who looks like Toulouse-Lautrec, the old Swedish sea salt, or the mafioso, does anyone know what I'm referring to? Borrowed from the fancy dress shop by Inspector Clouseau in the Pink Panther Strikes Again. Am I, I, sometimes I ask my audience whether they've seen the books that I've read or the plays that I've seen, and generally the answer is no, and then I feel completely alienated from them. Um, so how many people have actually seen The Pink Panther Strikes Again? Okay, oh, brilliant, okay, I, I breathe again. Um, okay. In the previous film, there's one fantastic uh, scene in which he decides that he's an expert on medieval castles and walks around disguised as a medieval castle expert. And after that, Peter Sellers clearly decided that disguise was just the best thing ever. And so he, every scene in The Pink Panther Strikes Again, Clouseau is in a new disguise. Um, and in particular, when he's playing the old Swedish sea salt, he has um, this fantastic inflatable parrot on his shoulder, which begins to deflate um, at different points. And therefore, the system that the joke shop has given him for this is that if he wants to reinflate the parrot, he has to, he's got one leg like this, and he has to act really vigorously with his crutch, and that will then reinflate the parrot. So it sort of finally it explodes, I think. So, but there is this sense within this that you start off with Peter Sellers, then he puts on his uniform as Inspector Clouseau, and that's somewhat ludicrous in itself. But when Inspector Clouseau puts on disguise, it is manifestly theatrical, non-naturalistic disguise. Well, I think we can see this in a couple of Plautine passages as well. Consider, for instance, the following scene from another somewhat obscure play of Plautus, the Trinumus, or Three Bob Day. In the passage that I've given you, and you might want to look particularly at the italicised sections, the returning Father Carmides um, has stumbles on the trickster who has been hired to hand over bogus letters purporting to come from Carmides himself. And what I'd like you to notice here is the voluminousness of the trickster's hat. 
It is such that he comes, in the words of Carmides, to resemble a mushroom. And I think we are here talking about a portobello mushroom. Its source, again, is the choragus, and the term that is used to describe it is ornamenta. There is also a proliferation of other words of the same root. Now, unfortunately, I can't get any pictures that would sort of indicate what that hat looked like, but you just have to engage your visual imagination and imagine someone with a fantastic sort of sombrero-like thing coming on stage that will clearly indicate that he has been to the fancy dress shop in order to get his disguise. In another play of Plautus, the Persa, we get our third and final reference to the Choragus. In lines 147 to 160, an intrigue is planned involving the daughter of Saturio, and we have all the usual elements of metatheatre in place. Um, we are told that the girl must know her lines. We are told that her costume must distinguish her as an outsider from the already markedly Athenian caste. We are told that her costume must be obtained from the Choragus, who has been instructed to distribute them by the aediles, the magistrates. And this festive overtone of the reference to the aediles, the people at Rome who actually paid for theatrical performances, picks up on various claims elsewhere in the play that, for instance, the slave hero Toxilus is celebrating his own festival, the Eleutheria, and various other references to things like the display of ostriches, or at the circus, or the use of hares in the games. Yet the truly metatheatrical tone returns most strongly at lines 462 to 6, when Sagaristio and the daughter of Saturio return, and this time they are decked out in their Persian costume. I leave it to you to imagine exactly what that looks like. We are told that their costumes are all in place, their lines are learned as well as tragic or comic actors ever learned their lines. The intrigue is all in place. And finally, and this is where we get back to the problem of the old Swedish sea salt, in a play called The Boastful Soldier. In this case, the slave Palaistrio, who is effectively the director of the intrigue against the boastful soldier, carried out by various other actors on stage. He has a cast of two courtesans, an affable old gentleman, and a surprisingly resourceful lover. And in this scene, he dispatches the lover Plusicles to the port, where he is to obtain a sailor's outfit. And you might note the delight that is taken in cataloguing the different elements of the costume and imagine the fun which this must have provoked when realised on stage. In particular, what I'm interested in here is the reference there to make sure that it's... He says that's the, that's the, the navel colour, Thassalicus is the colos. If we go back to that idea of colour coding at the beginning of my talk... That suggests, you know, that's the sea colour. Might well be an indication that that's what sailors wear on stage. This disguise will allow 
Plusicles to take part in an illusion that will delude the boastful soldier Pyrgo Polynices. So I ask, does the returning Plusicles look like a real sailor? Does Saturio's daughter in the Persa look like a Persian? Or does the hilarity of the successful intrigue depend on the sheer pantomimic absurdity of their dressing up box garb? I was very keen on the dressing up box at a certain age. Every indication is that Plautus and his company enjoyed the sheer absurdity of outlandish costume. The more theatrical it looked, the better. So comic costume, to conclude, is a thing that matters from head to toe. If the mask is the most familiar locus of information about the individual character, the actor's robes are the defining marker of ethnic identity and of location in the Greek or Roman world, and it is the job of the slipper to keep our feet on the ground and to refuse the elevation of that other genre, tragedy, against which comedy defines itself. And finally, for Plautus at least, costume is very much costume, and is therefore essential to a theatre as hilariously aware of its own procedures, its own illusions, as anything in the ancient world, and perhaps in ours as well. Thank you.